Hi, I'm Deborah Hamilton. Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Ten years ago, with my iPhone and a script, I recorded the first episode of the Ultimate Pet Resolution Summit, which chatted with experts about conflicts over animals. Our conversations were intimate, honest, and illustrated how disagreements over animals occur and how those disagreements can reshape people's lives and relationships. In November 2019, I started Why Do Pets Matter, a new podcast that continued these informative discussions. I'm so excited to have you here with me, continuing my exploration into a more meaningful conversation about why pets matter to all of us. My guests and I will share ideas, stories, and experiences straight from the heart, unscripted and holistic. From the bravest moments to the most brokenhearted, we will explore how to resolve disagreements over animals differently. One thing I know for sure is I want to have more meaningful conversations that will help all of us unlock that deeply felt human-animal bond that drives the emotions of conflict. On today's podcast, I speak with Randall Lockwood, who has a PhD in human-animal relationships. Randall helps explain how pets benefit people, public health surrounding pets, and why people harm animals. We've been friends for, well, we've been acquaintances for a long time. I'm hoping to get to be better friends. We met I can't believe it, like 10 years ago, Ms. Uh, Dr. Randall, PhD, Dr. Randall um, Lockwood, Dr. Randall Lockwood, who is retired now, but he was um, a vice president at, a senior vice president at the ASPCA, and now consults with them in policy, response, and engagement, particularly with animal abuse. So Randall, thank you so much for being here on Why Do Pets Matter? Thank you for having me. So we always ask our guests first thing out of the box, and I'll let all our listeners in on the fact that Randall and I have already had about a 15-minute conversation that I wished I had started the recording before. Uh, in why do pets matter to you, Randall? Mm -hmm. I think pets have always mattered, and, and uh, actually, uh, I, I attribute a lot of it, obviously, to, to my, my mother, who was really one of the most uh, compassionate and empathetic people who really from a very early age engendered a real respect for, for all animals. I still remember she had uh, annoyed my, my grandmother uh, who would come to the house and find spider webs. And my mother would say, well, that's their home. We leave it there for them. And that was, you know, and, and I got that message when I was four or five years old. Uh, obviously we had the usual, uh, progression of pets, dogs, cats, bunnies. Fortunately for at least my formative years, grew up on a small, not working farm. Actually, it was a, a farmhouse uh, owned by Will Gear, uh, Grandpa Walton, the actor uh, that we, we rented in, in West Nyack, New York. And so there were deer and bunny and a greenhouse and just that exposure. Um, so I was always interested in, in animals and nature, but it really uh, wasn't actually until my college years when I took my first animal behavior course and changed my major from chemistry to psychology and, and, and biology, and then became involved in, in studying whole animals instead of chemistry, and eventually wound up uh, studying wolves in Alaska and bats in Costa Rica, and finally kind of filled in the gaps of uh, seeing wildlife in natural conditions and really trying to put it all together. 
And then what made me change to you know, more activism was actually the experience of having the animals I was studying literally shot out from, from under me in, in Alaska and became very involved in conservation efforts and worked with Defenders of Wildlife and eventually uh, then uh, was on the staff of Humane Society of the U.S. for 21 years and then came to ASPCA for another 15 years. Well, you know, it's interesting. We all pivoted a certain time. I was going to become a veterinarian until I got to chemistry, too. And uh, that was the cure for any <laughs> chance that I would ever be a veterinarian. So I went to law school and you went on to get a Ph.D. and then pivoted a little bit more again when you went in to be more of an animal behaviorist than a human behaviorist. Tell us right. a little bit about that, because it seems to me that um, as we've learned now during COVID, the psyche of people has been assuaged by animals during this difficult time. And I'm sure you've seen that in your studies as well. Absolutely. You know, obviously we've, we've seen a dramatic rise in, in animal adoptions, but we've also seen a rise uh, with people forced to be together uh, arise in reports of child abuse and domestic violence and probably animal cruelty. Uh, we really haven't tracked all of that yet, but anytime people and families are under stress, those tensions are, are, are going to emerge in a variety of ways. And obviously one of the themes of a lot of my work is, is that the, the perpetrators of, of violence often don't, don't differentiate between their victims, whether they're human or animal. Uh, so unfortunately, the, the stresses have been both good for animals in terms of increasing number of, of adoptions, uh, also a number of animals that are certainly spending a lot more time with their people than they have in the past. Uh, I know, you know, since I, I haven't uh, been on an airplane since last November, uh, my dog has spent no time in the kennel. And so we put in at least a good mile or two of walks a day. Uh, fortunately, having now retired, that he's not going to have that transition when he's now left home alone. He hasn't been alone uh, at all for more than probably an hour uh, in, in the last you know, six months. You know, it's interesting. They, they were saying that they were afraid when people went back to work that the dogs that they might have adopted or fostered from shelters would have a real game change. And right. it's true. However, I think that our dogs, because I've been the same way. I mean, I traveled all over and my dogs now are in my office 24 seven because my office is at home. And I think they'll have a little bit of an issue when we start, I guess, re-engaging either by the end of this year or the middle of next year. So right. that's really interesting. Tell me a little bit more about how the animal behavior uh, trajectory came because you were, you received your PhD, but that was in an animal behaviorist and not or am I wrong? Please correct me. Um, right. in, in people behavior. No, actually, my PhD was in comparative psychology, uh, studying uh, wolves. But um, I was studying wolves during the, the, the summer in, in northern Alaska. During the winter, I, I couldn't access that group. So I started actually studying human-dog relationships, looking at, at dog bites and, and dog attack. I'd worked as a consultant for the Postal Service trying to deal with dog bites. And that's when I really got interested in all the dimensions of the human-animal relationship. I was interested in how uh, animals benefit people. And I'd worked with, with Aaron Catcher and others who did some of the first studies on uh, physiological responses of 
We knew the literature that dogs respond to being petted, and nobody had really looked at human responses to dogs, and then all the work on lowering blood pressure and heart rate and things like that. Uh, I was, was sort of on the periphery of a lot of that. So I was interested in how pets benefit people. I was interested in the value and impact of humane education. I'd done a lot of work with different and volunteering with local humane societies in, in Missouri and in New York. Uh, and then the flip side of that, uh, how animals can present public health risks to people, particularly looking at dog bites and dog bite epidemiology and what was underlying that. And then the final part of that, you know, the, those four dimensions is how and why people harm animals. So I was interested in the origins of kindness to animals, cruelty to animals, the benefits of pets and the risks of pets. And I think that's kind of helped me get the big picture because um, obviously the human animal relationship, particularly the human dog relationship, it's, it's probably the, the oldest and, and strongest uh, relationship between two species. And, and I really feel we have you know, literally co-evolved. We've influenced each other's form and function. Uh, so it's very interesting to, to look at all the dimensions of that, both, both the good and the bad. And that's been a little challenging because you know, sometimes people don't want to hear the bad stuff. Uh, sometimes when I would speak at conferences supported by the pet food industry, they certainly wanted to hear about all the health benefits of pets and the impact of humane education, but don't talk about dog bites. I said, well, you know, you, I live in the real world and, and I try to, I, I try to have, have real transparency of, of all things, because ultimately, obviously, if we don't understand uh, all those dimensions, then everybody potentially suffers, the animals and the people. You're absolutely right. I love the fact that you know, you identified that everybody wants to talk about the good, the good things, which, of course, when you started uh, with your study, likely um, uh, studies or, or PhD programs like the one at the University of Denver under Phil Tedesco uh, mm -hmm. weren't even around. You were sort right. of a pioneer in, oh, I'd like to think about how animals um, affect humans as opposed to how humans affect animals um, or both. And I think it's so interesting that, you know, we come from, you and I, because we're sort of the same age, we come from a time when there was no animal law, there was no um, study of animals other than as animals to help humans, right. uh, eye animals, uh, animal testing, things like that. And we sort of were the pioneers that said, well, let's look at it from the animal's point of view as well. And right. that created a little bit of a pushback, as you said, you know, yeah. um, and dog bites are sort of what everybody wants to um, push under the rug. And there's been a lot of study, which I'm sure you're on the cutting edge of, and I'd love to hear more about, uh, that dog bites aren't necessarily all the dog's fault. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, it, is, it is the responsibility of owners to identify the reactivity of their animals so that they can keep their animals safe and the people around their animals safe. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's sort of, and, and maybe I'm wrong and please correct me, it's sort of animal abuse in sort because you're not keeping that dog safe you're you're putting that dog in a situation where it feels it needs to be reactive um, right. so we had talked before about you know animal abuse and um, reporting and it's 
it's difficult sometimes for some of the people you would think would be automatic reporters to do that because of this um, dichotomy of what's the responsibility of the owner, what's my responsibility, what's my neighbor's responsibility. Right. Yeah. No, and, and I think, um, you know, it, also we're living in an, in an age when we just don't want to get involved uh, necessarily where, where we don't know our neighbors uh, anymore. Uh, and we certainly uh, are even sometimes potentially physically at risk by confronting someone. You know, these days you can't even confront someone for not wearing a mask when they should be, and let alone if you want to confront them. Or you, 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 we saw a few months ago the confrontation of the bird watcher in Central Park who confronted the lady with, you know, with her dog off leash. Uh, and things can get, get ugly. And, and, and uh, so, so people... But with any kind of uh, abuse or neglect, you know, looking the other way or assuming someone else will deal with it doesn't help the situation. It leaves you feeling that you somehow haven't done what you should, and it does certainly doesn't help the potential victim. And I think also in this time, which you were, you know, completely correct, the the bird and dog walker in Central Park and masks, the ability of people to receive information and not be as defensive and reactive right. has sort of gone the way of all flesh <laughs> you yeah. know it, it's it's as if you know well don't you talk about my dog and when i started my practice it was interesting i started with um uh three things that i wanted people to do when like their neighbor's dog was annoying them one was don't go over and speak to your neighbor when you're angry now that seems right. intuitive to you and I, right? Uh, and to right. anyone, but people usually do go over and speak to Randall about his barking dog right. when they've been woken up. Uh, so that's never a good time. Uh, I also suggested that people have, go get coffee. You know, don't go to somebody's house. They feel threatened and they feel their dog is threatened. And right. you, because you were at the ASPCA, you know this, you're immediately reactive. You wanna protect your dog. You wanna make sure your dog is safe. Um, and I just wanna tell you what I'm thinking. and you can tell us probably a million stories where a simple, I'd like to tell you, you know, your dog is either barking or running the streets or my kids are afraid or it knocked down my kids or maybe it bit my wife or my husband, uh, escalated into a huge issue because of that reptilian brain, which I'm sure you studied about. All yes. Oh yeah. No, and, 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 and that's one of the reasons why I think uh, dog bite is a particularly touchy topic because it, it, it definitely hits us in the reptilian brain. I mean, you know, the, one of the deepest fears is being attacked by a wild animal. And so people do not react logically and, and cognitively to things in, involving the potential of dog aggression. You react emotionally. And that's, you know, for 30 plus years, I've been, been dealing with sort of the, uh, you know, the gut or primal reaction to, to pit bulls. And you look at, you know, the anti-pitbull hysteria, which is definitely the lizard brain in action. Yeah, if you've ever seen one mean one, they're all mean. Right. And, and that might have had some evolutionary value when you were up against, you know, lions and tigers and bears. But um, we don't need that anymore. We've, we've got another part of the brain that can weigh <laughs> the costs and benefits of different courses of action. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I used to litigate these things as I think we spoke about when I first talked and then um, it, 
I used to litigate these things. And then I realized if I could foster some sort of discussion in a neutral area that would really let everyone get back into their prefrontal cortex and right. actually think about what they were doing and saying, because I really don't want my dog biting or knocking down your child. I really don't. And mm -hmm. I really don't want your dog biting or knocking down my child. So how can we work together to make sure that doesn't happen? I certainly don't want you to get rid of your dog, make it homeless, kill your dog, God forbid, um, or have your child hurt. So when you were with the ASPCA, I'm sure these kind of discussions came up and maybe they didn't, uh, but some other interesting ones probably did that, that really put you in a place where you had to, I, you know, for lack of a better explanation, I always want my people to breathe. Yeah, I think that, that that's good. And, and you know, seeing the full range of responses uh, in animal control professionals and law enforcement, you know, some of the most effective that, that I've seen have been those that really are almost the, the social work approach uh, where you try to educate. Uh, and, you know, some people are not educable, but you have to start with the assumption that they might be. And, and, and try, try that approach. And the, you know, the other approach I try to encourage, and I, I've done a lot of training of law enforcement on encounters with dogs, because that's been another issue we've dealt with a lot, is uh, particularly police shooting of dogs. And the, the common thread in so many of those is a lack of patience. Right. Uh, and and, and uh, sometimes this, this primal fear and the lizard brain kicking in rather than accurately assessing the risk of the, of the situation. And in general, as, as uh, I'm sure you, you know from your experience, people are pretty bad at risk assessment in general. You know, we, we, do, we, we, we do form the, these kind of universals where we try to find a quick and easy fix rather than thinking out with some degree of patience, how can we, we resolve this? And also, Quick fixes are often you know, politically popular, but ineffective. Uh, it, it, they give the appearance of addressing the situation. And the analogy I've, I've used is uh, you know, for, for, for many years, when we think of back when we were all flying frequently and how many of us had to take off our shoes because one jerk tried to have a bomb in his shoe. And the likelihood that you would ever encounter another person with a bomb in their shoe is infinitesimal. And the literally millions, if not tens of millions of dollars that were spent in time and money of addressing um, a virtually non-existent threat well, one of the, the biggest causes of, of injury and accidents is, is runway accidents at, at air, airports uh, because you don't have proper training and equipment for air traffic control. Yeah. And if the money had been put into something like that, but that's not, that doesn't soothe the public's concern. Oh, I have to take, they must be alert. They're going to catch the bad guys because I had to take my shoes off. Yeah. It's totally nonsensical. And, and, you know, there's a lot of literature on how bad people are at risk assessment in, in, in many different dimensions. So it's sort of like a really bad ROI, you know, a lot of investment in a certain practice, which isn't going to provide the security you think it is, right? right. It, it yes. just doesn't happen. It's interesting you brought that up because when um, the ABA Animal Law Committee did a, a a program a study on police shootings of animals. Mm -hmm. And in the study, I had said, I think we need to sit down with law enforcement and ask them how they feel. Mm -hmm. And they said, but that's not a part of our study. 
And yeah. you said it perfectly. You know, the the problem is that they are really bad at risk assessment. We don't know what their prior um, experiences have been. And if we don't, before we write the report, you know, the one that's a quick fix, that's politically correct, mm-hmm. um, if we don't get the input of the, you know, animal care and control people who are out on the front lines, if we don't get the input of the police officers, the ones we criticize all the time, right? The ones who shoot the dogs. Um, If we don't get their input either before or after what was going through their mind so that we can address that, at least this is my, and you can correct me and tell me I'm totally off base. Um, To correct that immediate risk assessment that is detrimental to the the animal because of our fear. Like you said at the beginning, you know, we're not having wolves and lions and tigers and bears running after us anymore, but we still will fear an animal who's coming at us looking pretty right. angry. Yeah. And and the, the other component of that too is, is just uh, the, the culture. And uh, right now we, we've kind of toned down our, our efforts in doing training on, on law enforcement, on our don't shoot the dog tra- training because we have far greater need for don't shoot the people training. Yeah, don't shoot the police officers or the other people's training. Right. Now we're going crazy. You know, they're obviously related. Uh, there was an interesting study actually looking at um, police shooting of dogs in the LA area where they had done some crime mapping of the incidents. And they'd also mapped the area for use of force complaints against police for use of force against people. And the, the, the mapping of the, the two kinds of complaints virtually overlapped yep. uh, because it's coming from some of the same origin, but even more exacerbated by the fact that animals are property, uh, you know, the uh, inaccurate description of the potential risk and also basic disdain. Hey, it's only a dog. Yeah. Um, and, and my now, life is really much more valuable. You know, What's changed that view and one of the reasons why police departments are taking it more seriously uh, is, is because of the litigation that's, that's happened. We, we've had wrongful shooting cases of police shooting dogs litigated for in excess of $700,000. I know. Uh, and, and those kinds of cases can, can certainly uh, be a wake-up call. But also, you know, one of the things in my own studies had shown uh, when we had done a lot of um, uh, focus groups of law enforcement on, on a variety of issues, but one of the things that, that came out, at least in, in our focus groups, was that the the rate of dog ownership among police officers is higher than the general public. It was like about 70%. You know, most police officers don't want to shoot dogs. And you've got a few wackos who enjoy shooting dogs yeah. uh, and we've had a number of instances where it is you know, one or two officers in a very large department I'm, I'm pleased that when we we've been doing we've certainly been addressing these issues in trainings that we that ASPCA does for the NYPD and uh, also for many years now, the NYPD has been much more transparent in their use of force reports. They put out an annual publication that's very detailed on every uh, time an officer has anything. And uh, the the, the 2018 report, the last I got, only documented six shootings of dogs, whereas about five years ago it was 30. And even that's remarkable. We have 30, over 30,000 NYPD officers uh, and if only, and I think of those six shootings, only three dogs were killed. Uh, 
There were also yeah. only six shootings of people yeah. by police officers, uh, again, with a population of 8 million people and 30,000 cops. The training does help, but also it has to be the, the, the culture of the department and, and the message that this should be taken seriously. And I think it helps that obviously we've had a good working relationship for more than five years now between ASPCA and the NYPD. And they do a take your dog to work with the police officers and so on. So they just kind of get it uh, as opposed to some of the police departments have been involved in where we've, uh, I've been involved in federal lawsuits against them for, for and, and often the use of force complaints go in against both people and animals. Yeah. It's, you know, it's so interesting, the life you've lived, because for me, I, I work for the police department coming out of law school. My dad was a, a lieutenant in the New York City Police Department, so it's near and dear to my heart. And having worked with police officers, I know that they they sometimes knee-jerk when somebody wants them to do something differently. They, yeah. you know, as you said, their risk assessment, oh my God, this is going to make me stop and pet the dog while I'm trying to catch a murderer. Right. Okay, fine. No, that's not really not what we're asking you to do, but we're asking you to give us assistance in how we can help you better assess the situation so that nobody gets hurt. You don't get hurt. Right. The dog doesn't get hurt. And as you said, only six people were shot and six dogs were shot and, you know, hopefully none of them died or some, only a few. It, it, really is that ability to um, take a breath. And, and so you said you were working with them for five years. And if we can continue to do that, hopefully, given the atmosphere we're in now, um, it might not be um, of prime um, import now, not because it isn't of prime import, but so much has changed in the last, I don't know, four years, that, and especially in the last year, that it really comes to um, the fore that animals really um, create this this need for us to be a little more um, humane when we are treating people and animals. And if we can think about that, that that could maybe help us through this period where uh, the lack of humanity is is sort of um, taking a jump start from when you and I were young. <laughs> It just is, it's interesting. So I'd love to wrap up because I, you know, this has been such a phenomenal discussion. Um, I love the fact that you are working with the New York City Police Department and have focus groups because that's near and dear to my heart, being able to help people tell you, Randall Lockwood, why you're afraid of dogs when you come on a scene and how you as an animal behaviorist and a, and a, a cross behaviorist, actually, human and animal, um, that you can help them understand what they're going through so they can take a minute and as we said before take a breath you know mm -hmm. just want to take a breath and it's not like i want you to take a breath and get shot in that breath but rather i'd like you to take a breath and assess it yeah and actually one of the the approaches i used was, was we, we even call it a five second assessment just learning basic you know canine body language and and uh, realizing what some of your your, your uh, assumptions are but you're absolutely right why we've gotten our foot in the door is uh, we're, we're doing it for your, your benefit. Obviously, if you do it right, you are you yourself or your uh, colleagues are less likely to get hurt. We, you know, it helps that we could document multiple situations where uh, in dog shootings, bystanders have been hit. Uh, uh, you know, several uh, bystanders had been killed by stray bullets. Uh, several fellow officers had, had been, been shot. Uh, and uh, 
you know, and that, we're not minimizing their getting bitten either. Right. Right. I mean, we're not minimizing that they do get bitten. Right. Yes. Um, and, yeah, and, 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 and also, you know, you start out with the, with the uh, admission that you are going to be in situations where dogs are being used as a weapon against you. Yeah. There are certainly situations where lethal force may be justified. And we're going to help you make that decision quickly. Yes. But, but part of it is also being prepared, not, not going into situations uh, you're totally unprepared. That And obviously, as part of the training, one of the things you, you start out with initially is if you don't have intelligence about where, where it is you're going, the, the realization is, is particularly if, if you're you know, a beat cop, probably one in three of the households you're going to be knocking on the door or visiting has a dog. Yeah. You just have to go with the assumption there could be a dog here. And you look for the signs that there's a dog there. Uh, if it is a more serious you know, criminal situation where you're dealing with, with you know, drug dealers or whatever, again, uh, have a good dialogue with uh, animal care and control. Know, uh, find out what they know about, about that area. And I've, I've been involved in, in a number of operations where we have animal control going along with regular law enforcement. Partly, but we're not asking regular police to be animal control officers, although it has helped that we've, we've trained them uh, in use of a control stick. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we had to do that in, in Maryland, which had uh, a number of high profile dog shooting incidents. And uh, the county involved actually began issuing uh, control sticks to police, you know, put it in the trunk of their car and bring in animal control to teach them appropriate use if they don't have time to call animal control to respond. Right. It, you know, giving them the tools they need, giving everyone animal care and control to ride along, police um, control sticks and the public to understand that. Um, they have to keep their animals under control as well. Because I'm thinking, and I'm sure in, in your studies, this is quite true. When somebody bangs on the door or just knocks on the door and you see they're the police, there's, a, there's an adrenaline that starts. Both the police officers knocking on the door, the police officer's adrenaline, and then the person answering the door. Right. And unfortunately for us as humans, uh, our dogs pick up on that adrenaline. Oh, absolutely, sure. And so even the sweetest dog in the entire universe may become protective of its owner simply because you are exuding some fear. Yeah, absolutely. And police have to, you know, um, engage in that uh, situation, whether they're there to just check up on someone and there's no need for adrenaline. I know when I get pulled over for going a little too fast on the highway, um, the adrenaline goes in my body. And I don't know, Randall, you probably have never been pulled over for going a little too fast on the highway. But, you know, when you see something like that, the minute you have it happen, your heart starts to flutter and all that adrenaline starts. So we as humans can sometimes energize our pets to be a little different than they would be if we were sitting on the couch watching, you know, multiple episodes of West Wing, as some of mm -hmm. us have done during COVID. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's a whole different can. Well, you know, uh, there was so much I wanted to talk to you about. I wanted to talk to you about how ASPCA helped with, you know, COVID and people going to the hospital and not coming home, uh, unfortunately. Um, and I wanted to talk to you more about veterinarians and how um, they can help in animal abuse. So we're, I, I hope you'll come back. I'd love for you to we, come back. We can do this again sometime, sure. 
I appreciate it um, because this has been such an educational piece. I, I love that you said that everyone you believe, you know, in your heart is educa educatable. Um, I think that's the way you pronounce it because you want to go in thinking you can have a conversation with someone and it might not be that first conversation because they may be too emotional, too much in their reptilian brain, as we said, mm -hmm. to really hear you. So you can stop talking and listen at first and then you know be able to have a conversation maybe later that they would be more receptive to because we're all fearful that something's going to happen to our animals um i love that you said you know your risk assessment in the middle of a heated exchange or um experience is not your strong suit i know it's not mine um so learning skills when you're not in that risk in that right. high energy event will help you when you come there because you say wait a minute let me take a beat this is what I learned. This is the body language of the animal that Randall taught me. And so I can see that the dog's ears are um, in a place where it's coming to say hello and it's not you know, coming to chew me, even though it looks like it's coming to chew me. Um, and that's a simplistic example, but I mean, there are ways you can tell. Uh, and being able to understand that police officers have taken to this um, experience and this offer of training uh, to a large degree, especially here in New York, um, and you spoke about Maryland, so those are the only two we spoke about, so we can't say it's broadly, but it probably is more broadly than we spoke about, um, available and, and open to learning these things so that they don't get the fallout and the towns and cities don't get the huge fallout of paying out um, huge recoveries for right. loss of animals, um, which, you know, that, that whole, um, discussion is, is, you know, yet to come because it is enforceable in different areas in different ways. And, right. and we'll see where that's going to go. Right. I appreciate you coming, Randall. So everyone, why do pets matter? Randall Lockwood, I am so grateful you were here and talked to us about so many interesting things having to do with um, not liking chemistry, me too, um, and going on your trajectory a different way because of it. We have something very much in common. And then really the way in which people handle their own pets um, and how uh, police would respond to animals of people when they go on a call. So hopefully you'll come back. I'd love to do the vet. I'd love to do COVID. And I think we'll be talking about COVID at least for another six right. months. Hopefully and we didn't not. get to talk about animal hoarders either. That's one of my favorite topics. Well, oh God, I'm writing that one down too because animal hoarders, it is, it is an art to be able to get the animals out of, an, at least this is my opinion, and you can, you can correct me. It's an art to be able to talk to them, um, help them understand, and help them disperse their animals in a way that um, doesn't create a situation where they get them back again. I think that, right? It's an art. It's an art. Go ahead. Okay. No, I was going to say, well, yes, we, we could spend another whole hour just on that. So Perfect. So we will do that. Um, this is Deborah Hamilton, Why Do Pets Matter? I'm so glad you're here. If you like this podcast, please share it. Everyone should hear what Randall has to say. Um, please like it and make a comment. And if you want, subscribe. I'd be grateful. You take good care. And this is Deborah Hamilton, Why Do Pets Matter? The Why Do Pets Matter podcast drops every Thursday and can be found on whichever platform you find your podcasts. Subscribe now, invite your friends, and I cannot wait to have you join me in these conversations.